glad that we got the new setup. Whoa. Don't look now. Or do. Podcast 2.0, baby. Yes, we actually, yeah, with dog treats on the table now. Yeah, yes, exactly. Hot dog. But yeah, new setup. We got some new gear. Hopefully you guys can, I was going to say hopefully you guys can see it, but again, audio format. Yeah, I mean, we do have the video. A little so video I guess format. We can post a clip if, if you guys really want to see it, or we can just take a picture of it, I guess, because... We have that's, technology. That's also the option. Yeah, <laughs> but yes. simple pictures. Uh, I, know, I know I mentioned a couple episodes ago that we ordered new microphones and stuff, and they finally came in. So we got three of the same microphones now instead of running separate mics from separate computers, which is what we were doing before, which was just way more of a pain in the ass. And this is going to be now, hopefully. I'm so excited. This is such a, I don't know. I mean, we we've done tests. Audio sounds good. I thought it sounded good. I thought it sounded great. So hopefully you There's guys There's just going to be one person commenting and be like, you know what? I missed when I could actually hear Evan on Jacob's audio. and <laughs> So this is what you guys sound like? I guess I'm not going to listen anymore. <laughs> we just lose all the subscribe, like all the countries. Yeah, it's like hopefully you can hear us loud and clear. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one asks for the video format. Dang, you guys are ugly. All right, we get it. <laughs> It's like, oh, this is what opening ourselves up to more viewers is like. Nice. But anyways, welcome everybody to the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Shop, and joining me is Evan Roosh. Hey, hey. Yeah, and if this is your first time listening, welcome. We are a very loose format history podcast where we... We are the loose format history <laughs> podcast. That is very true. <laughs> and yeah, we just try and make it a little more fun so you guys can have a little fun with it. Still learn something along the way because I know... I personally do love history, so all of it's interesting mm-hmm. to me, but I know history is not very interesting to a lot of people, so it can get very dry and very stale very quickly, and our goal is to make sure that that doesn't happen so that you guys can actually have fun with it. Right, and a lot of the com- or the common misconception with history is that it's all just dates and names. Everyone that I've ever talked to about our podcast has said, well, I just don't like history because it's all dates, names, which I just don't know. We rarely talk about dates and we always well not we i always mess up the pronunciation <laughs> yeah, of the names there's gonna be a lot of that today <laughs> so it's just a very you know we keep this very relaxed it's more just storytelling talking about the people that were there and more of their motivations of why they did it and i mean that's just us explaining our show at episode 77 yeah we're close to 100 yeah we're getting to 100 we've we've got a we've got plans not mm-hmm. set in stone plans, but we've got plans for it. Oh, so. boy. Do we have plans for episode 100? Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. But, yeah, that's our that's us in a nutshell, if you have never listened before. And we like to also kind of draw connections between stuff we've covered in the past mm-hmm. to stuff we're covering as we go along. So it's cool to see where things that we've done overlap with each other and how everything works off of each other to create where we are now. Yeah, there's a whole lot of parallels. We talk about it all the time, whether it's how cultures were basically started. I mean, they all started in the same way with finding a civilization, getting together, working together. I mean, the basically every single continent, every single uh, group of people started their own religion, too. So that's also a very interesting thing that we're all like, let's pray to the sun. Yeah, so... This episode's not going to be about how civilization starts. Because we did that last time. We've done that. But we're going to talk today specifically about the Spanish-American War. Yes, it's very, very similar to the War of 1812 in that this is a war that we just don't talk about. Yeah. Uh, as Americans, it's kind of, it, it truly is probably just like 
a paragraph this is in one history of, books. This is one of the first wars where it's America getting involved in things that America doesn't need to get involved in. Specifically the United States, not like America as in North and South America. Because and, I I was doing my notes and I knew, noticed like every time I wrote America, I was like, well, we're technically talking about America this whole time. Right. Because we're talking about Cuba, which is in South America. Mm-hmm. And then we're also talking about North America as in the United States. So I tried to make distinctions between the United States and America as I went through my notes. Yeah, this is this is America's first international conflict, I would say, other than fighting off the British. Yeah. Uh, but it's extremely interesting. Um, it's a war, much like the War of 1812, that, like we said, isn't talked about there weren't a ton of huge battles compared to like a world war one world war two but the impact that was felt in post-war absolutely insane it helped propel a certain someone into presidency uh that being teddy roosevelt so that's exactly how andrew jackson got propelled in his presidency (laughs) what a good guy (laughs) andrew jackson we do not stand (laughs) but it's an interesting war from the perspective that it was such an easily avoidable war for America, for the United States at least. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, as we'll go along, the United States proposes things to the Spanish to avoid war, which the Spanish meets all of those demands, and then they still went to war with them anyways. And it's just, this is America becoming imperialistic. This is their, this is their let's go out and explore chapter. <laughs> We already we already did everything we can in our land. Let's yeah. go take over other people now. Right. They were like, manifest destiny. Well, we got that. Let's see what the Hawaiians are up to. And then <laughs> yep. the Philippines. Yeah. And, and the then Ho- the Caribbean. And the Hawaiians said no the first time. So yep. <laughs> we went to Cuba. Yes. But yeah, this is a war that we don't really talk about, mostly because it only lasts officially for like four months. It's right. a very short war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is how we destroy pretty much destroyed the last scraps of what the Spanish international empire was. Mm -hmm. So we kind of kicked them back over to Europe officially, and they don't really have any way of coming back after this. So it is a very interesting war in the fact that it is so short, but does have pretty big ramifications for the United States and Spain. So Yeah, absolutely. Shall we get into it? Let's get into it. I think right. we already did get into it. Yeah, we've given you the background. Now let's let's get into it a little deeper, huh? So America at this point in its history, we're right around the period after the Civil War. We're getting into the 1900s almost. And America was warning Europe to kind of stay out of the West at this point. But eventually, America saw that Spain was losing Cuba and said, Let's take that and turn that into a slave state. But this was before the Civil War happened. So once the Civil War actually took place and slavery was abolished in America, that ambition of creating a slave state in Cuba kind of went to the wayside. Yeah, the Confederacy said, ah, shucks. Yeah, and the fact that we're trying to not only get a slave state outside of the U.S., but we're also trying to expand slavery inside of the U.S. So this was a very, let's not say our brightest moment in our history. Yeah, and very open about it. Like, this wasn't something that we were hiding, that we were trying to make Cuba into a slave state. It was the sole purpose of why we were trying to get get it, and 
everyone was on board. And Cuba was pretty much already a slave state, just not our slave state. So Right, it belonged to someone else at that point, yeah. meaning the country. Until the sugar plantations on Cuba became extremely profitable for America, we kind of pushed them off to the side and didn't really think about it. But then sugar became a huge commodity. America needed to expand its exports into new markets. So the Cuban market would be another place that we could sell our own goods and make more money. And they already have products sitting in country that we could use. So mm-hmm. it was pretty much set up for America to just come in and pretty much marginalize an entire group of people to take advantage of their community that they already built and use what they had already made. If you could summarize America in two sentences, <laughs> yeah. our foreign our foreign policy. Yeah, this is, as I mentioned, imperialism <laughs> is the word for this entire chapter of American history. And if you don't know what imperialism is, it's basically just expanding outside of the boundaries of your country into other areas and colonizing those countries to build basically an empire. Essentially what the Spanish did to, for example, the Aztecs and all of South America, what the Portuguese did in Brazil, what British did to half the damn world. Yeah. So that's just a little bit of background on why America was even interested in Cuba at this time period. But I'm going to talk a little bit more now about how Spain was around this time period, because Spain was going through a lot of political strife and a lot of overturn in leadership very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of the reason why their empire crumbled as quickly as it did. Because Spain became its own unified nation in the 15th century and pretty quickly rose to power in Europe in the next couple centuries. But coming to power in Europe in the 15th fifteenth to 17th centuries, that's going to put a lot of strain on not only your fighting power, but also your wealth. Because mm-hmm. it's not cheap to have a lot of wars, which Europe was just going hog wild with war in this time period. Very war heavy. And especially for a new power, mm-hmm. and one that's not necessarily huge like Spain is. So, Right, I mean, even ships... They cost a lot of money, and you need to have ships, exactly. ironically, if you want to conquer all these islands surrounded by water. <laughs> but Spain did do very well with their navy. They did have one of the most powerful navies in Europe around this time period. So they did really well to take over and make themselves into a first-rate power. But by the year 1700, Spain was mainly reduced to a few islands around the European area and the European Peninsula, which is where Spain is settled today. And it was just in Europe that they kind of lost prestige. They still had a bunch of Hispanic islands in the Americas, and that still made Spain a player in international politics. So they're still a world player. It's just that in Europe proper, they weren't really sitting on the top anymore. They avoided war for a while, but eventually the French Revolution happens, and then Napoleon takes over. And looks at all of those spicy flamenco dancing Spaniards and says, I want to fight them. (laughs) (laughs) And thus begins years of war known as the Napoleonic Wars, which just last for way too long. I mean, Napoleon, we've we need to do an episode on him soon just because we always bash like this very smart military uh, tactician. Even though he lost to a big group of bunnies. <laughs> yeah, that is Gotta true. listen to one of the earlier episodes for that fun tidbit. He but. is a very interesting man. But yeah, that's an entire other story. So mm-hmm. just know that Napoleon comes into Spain and this really puts an even bigger strain on their manpower and 
their already tumultuous political sense of identity going on. And after the Napoleonic Wars, Spain was divided politically and had established a democratic system for very short period of time because it was almost immediately overthrown in 1812. And that led to 20 more years of unrest that preceded a Spanish Civil War. So Spain is not doing great right now, <laughs> at it, least internally. This was a wild time for Spain. But hey, shout out democracy for just peeking its head out and then being immediately stamped out. It was definitely a whack-a-mole situation where yeah. democracy finally poked its head and was immediately smacked down. Right. It's like the people, the people said, hey, we can vote now. And then the rich people said, absolutely not. Are you nuts? <laughs> So the Spanish Civil War ended with the liberals winning, but the following 20 years after the Civil War saw even more military coups overthrowing and changing the Constitution constantly until 1854, when the democratic regime brought temporary order. So we finally get back to democracy after 40 years. How many of... How many people do you think just, like, turned it off after you said the liberals won? <laughs> right. They're, like, unbelievable. Well, and, and now I'm just naming dates. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I thought this wasn't going to be dates and names. Yeah. <laughs> but this is all background information on yes. how Spain was looking around this time period, because it is very important to know that they were not doing well when the Spanish-American War happens. No. So once that democratic regime takes over again in 1854... Spain rebuilds its military, especially the Navy, and small foreign wars were fought and won, and this is where they gain a little more of the land back that they had lost. They get more land in Hispanic America, and this has a two-pronged effect on the morality in Spain because it gave the Spanish people a false sense of being a major world power again, and it also pushed military men to the forefront of political reform. So both of those things sound good in theory because now they're expanding again, but this they're also on a foundation built on sand. Mm -hmm. they're, this is not a good thing for them to be pursuing at this period in time because they really haven't found their identity as a country again yet. Right, yeah. Their internal system, internal affairs was still very much an upheaval. Yeah, it was a mess. And they were like, let's conquer the Philippines. <laughs> so chaos reigned in Spain for years after this again, until a man known as Alfonso VIII settles in and stabilizes things for, not I don't want to say for good, but it's going to be the most stable it's going to be in this time period until it finally, like, ultimately settles down and becomes just the Spain we know today. Man, can't believe Alfonso took eight times to get that one uh, all settled. <laughs> yeah, it finally got done. Didn't. I'm just gonna. You're gonna take all the new equipment and yep. get out. It's I'm... like, this was a mistake. <laughs> I'm glad I did this. And by 1898, Spain was once again under the illusion of that imperial power status and had just survived revolts in both Cuba and the Philippines. So they're sitting on top, high and mighty, in their eyes. And in 1898, that's when the Spanish-American uh, Spanish War actually happens. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but there's a lot that happens in Cuba specifically before that with the Spanish and the Cubans that is very important to how America becomes involved. So a few years before the war, Spain had to implement some new tactics in Cuba because they 
already had put down revolts and now had to figure out a way to satiate the people of Cuba so that they don't revolt again and they can maintain their power in Cuba. So political reforms were proposed by one of Spain's generals, but they were quickly put down because they were deemed not feasible. They just wouldn't work. So a man named Arsenio Martinez Campos was deposed, and the prime minister that was in power before him took back power, and he began to try and figure things out in Cuba. And he immediately went from a military or from a political idea to a military idea. As you see a lot, just with, again, around the world, with these kind of rocky situations, uh, you can have the greatest intentions to establish a democracy. It will quickly turn to a military regime. Very quickly. And that's what happened. I.e. Castro. Yes. Uh, a man named General... Ve- Ooh, I knew I was going to get this one wrong on the first try. You got this. You got this. General there's, there's new equipment. You got it. Valeriano Whaler took over power in Cuba, and Whaler was a very hardline army man who immediately decreed a quote-unquote reconcentration of the rural population. So he moved them from the rural homes that they had to fortified towns, while the Spanish went about destroying lands that the insurrectionists used for food and support, at the same time that the insurrectionists were burning sugar and tobacco plantations to hurt the government. So they're literally going scorched earth on their enemies, uh, just with the different, I mean, one's burning food, one's burning cash crops. I'm very curious uh, how loud the collective is going to be from the listeners when uh, they hear the word constant or reconcentration. Uh, I know, it's not a good connotation to have. You never want to hear that word in history. Yeah, so... Yeah, as you can guess, the reconcentration camps didn't go well, because while everyone else was burning everything outside of these fortified towns that these people were now resettled in, the camps were suffering from disease and hunger, which killed thousands of people, which gave Whaler the moniker of the Butcher, mm-hmm. because he was the one that set it all up. And all the while, while this is happening, back home in Spain... The news was pumping out anti-U.S. reports that led the public to believe that the United States were motivated only by greed and their wish to take Spanish possessions, while also saying that there was no way that Spain could lose to the United States. First part's not entirely inaccurate. (laughs) Yeah. The U.S. was very greedy around this time. Yeah, they, they called their shot on that one. Yep. But they were there was definitely a way that Spain could lose. That was that was a mis, a mistake on their part. Right, yeah. And they found out later, but we'll get to that. So General Whaler was recalled in eighteen ninety seven and the civilians in those reconcentration camps were allowed to go back home, but now the Spanish re- leaders were scrambling again to do anything that they could to prevent the US from getting involved, and that wouldn't take long for the US to become involved. About a year. Yeah. I mean, we wait, we waited a good year. It's, how much How much longer do you want us to? It is very funny how f- quickly the Spaniards backpedaled on that Spain can't lose the U.S. sentiment. Ruh-roh. <laughs> In Cuba, where the Spanish-American War eventually takes place around this time, is also just very interesting from a cultural pers- perspective as well. 
So the Cuban people had attempted an overthrow in 1878, 20 years before the Spanish-American War happens, but were put down. And the second war for Cuban independence began in February of 1895, so three years prior to American involvement. And the interesting thing about the fight at this time period was that it wasn't necessarily native Cubans against foreign Spanish, because the native Indians on the island were basically wiped out when the Spanish arrived. Mm -hmm. Tell me if you've heard this one before. According to a paper written by a history graduate from Southern Illinois named Greg Eight, four out of every five Cubans by this time were actually Spaniards or of generational descent from the Spanish, and the other one out of those five were descendants of former slaves from Africa or mixed children from slaves and settlers. Yeah, but you see that through just... I mean, all of South America and all of North America, just eventually there was so few people of native descent on these different pla- or at these different places that I guess there's no other option. Yes. There's just going to be, you know, genetic intertwining, if you will. Yeah, it's basically no more pure-blooded natives are left at a certain point. Yes, yeah. As Greg Eight wrote, quote, This meant that, for the most part, the Cuban Revolution was actually a civil war between Republicans from Cuba and monarchists from Spain, end quote. So it's pretty clear to see that it's just the Spanish fighting the Spanish again. Right. Just on a more, uh, there's just some like water in between the two at this point. And by 1894, one man named Jose Marti had organized a revolutionary force from his base of operations in Florida in conjunction with a group from New York, and he realized very quickly that America may be pushing for intervention in Cuba for more reasons than just goodwill, because sugar prices were already being challenged by America and many wealthy Cubans supported the move. But once Cuba asked for American United States military help, Jose knew that once the United States was in Cuba, they may never get her out. Oh, no. We would definitely occupy and essentially do the same thing the Spanish would. Yeah. Maybe we wouldn't do the whole concentration camp thing or reconcentration camp thing, but you're trading one evil for another, one imperial power for another. In 1894, the United States started levying a 40% tariff on sugar imports and pretty much was single-handedly responsible for a Cuban depression. Once this happened, Jose Marti saw that the Cubans were looking for ways to get back in the American good graces because they needed to sell their excess sugar. But he didn't let the United States and Havana talk long enough to pretty much organize that American intervention because he returned to Cuba with his revolutionary force very quickly, giving a clear reasoning for it. In a quote after the revolt had begun, Marti said, quote, The Cuban War has broken out in America in time to prevent the annexation of Cuba to the United States. So he pretty much had to jumpstart his efforts Mm -hmm. to cut the line of communication short between the Havana Embassy and the United States in Washington, trying to organize how we could settle this in a diplomatic way. Right, right, right. So he's, he's going scorched earth to try and take back his country for the cubans not for the americans making yeah make cuba for cuba and not cuba for american profits or spanish profits marti recruited cuban heroes from earlier battles to rally the cuban people 
So while the forces in New York were lobbying for the Cuban cause in Washington, pushing for U.S. intervention in Cuba, and thus pushing against Marti's hopes, Jose was killed in battle by the Spanish. In his last letter, which he never finished, he continued to encourage the Cubans to fight for their own independence without the United States by saying, quote, It is my duty to prevent, by the independence of Cuba, the United States from spreading over the West Indies and falling with that added weight upon other lands of our America. Yeah, literally, the idea of America taking possession of this land was extremely terrifying for the Cubans. I mean, they literally just saw what we did to Native Americans on the continent itself. And, I mean, they were pretty correct with or just suggesting that the same thing would most likely happen if America did conquer Cuba. And I think one of the most telling lines in that quote was the end phrase where he says, upon other lands of our America, because he knew that they were kind of the stepping stone for the United States Mm -hmm. to move south into more of South America to take over more land. So he knew if we don't stop them here, what's to stop them from continuing past us? Mm -hmm. So he was already thinking about the bigger picture and trying to encourage everyone, like, we're the ones that got to stop this now. Literally kind of like a, almost a Thermopylae, if you will. He's like, yeah. that's where, if they get through here, then we're all kind of done. Yeah, so talk about a little bit of pressure. Yeah, just a bit for for people that just want to have their own island. Yeah. So losing Marti was a big blow for the cause because he was the planner and organizer for pretty much the entire Cuban Revolution. But Generals Maximo Gomez and Antonio Maceo took up the cause and still pushed for no United States intervention. So even though Marti was gone, these two guys really stepped up to lead the the Cuban Revolution and continue the sentiment that Jose had brought earlier on. And in a quote from the New York World, Maceo is quoted as saying, I should not want our neighbors to have shed their blood for our cause. We can do that ourselves. So... If that's not a clear statement of what they want to do here, I don't really know how else to lay it out. At that point, he's just like, it's not even hostile at all. He's like, no, for real, stay at home. Like, we got this. Like, yeah. we'll fight and die for our own cause. Right, like, we're good. And likewise, in a letter to the New York support group that was backing Marty originally, he wrote, quote, Do you really want to cut the war down? Bring Cuba 25,000 to 35,000 rifles and a million bullets. We Cubans do not need any other help. Very strong statements going back to back with each other to prove that they're fine. Right. Wow. That is extremely interesting. Yeah. So the sentiment was very much, we don't need you to come and help us. But this is still early in the revolution. So I guess a lot changes in two years. Mm Mm-hmm. The other general, Gomez, was quoted in a very similar manner, saying that those who disregarded the United States' aspirations of absorbing Cuba were more or less on the side of the Spanish and against the revolution. But America began to misquote some of the statements from these two generals, with one American newspaper writer named Ambrose Bierce taking Gomez's quote, which had originally read, Cuba must not be beholden for its independence in any way to foreign good graces. And this was in an interview, I should mention, with an American general. 
So pretty much saying straight to this American general's face, we don't want to be responsible for being independent to you. Right. And Ambrose Bierce rewrote this as, quote, Cuba is to have no army of her own, but is to rely altogether on you. You offer us the independence of a dependency. End quote. I mean, that's just not even... <laughs> just literally, literally 180 that. Oh, he was just doing some wordsmithing. What do you mean? That is nuts. That's you just... offer us the independence of a dependency is such a backhanded slap. Like, right. Oh, yeah. You'll be independent, but you'll be dependent on us now. You'll be independent. Wink. It's just... That misquote is just absolutely absurd yeah so you'll be we'll be seeing a lot of that in what will become known as yellow journalism which we'll be talking a lot about as we get into this more but i just wanted to get some of that in there so that you guys kind of understand what the situation is like not only in cuba but in spain around this time and how spain is already struggling trying to maintain itself internally and now they're trying to maintain a a satellite colony Mm -hmm. and cuba is for the second time now, trying to get Spain out. So, a lot of turmoil. A lot of turmoil, that is for sure. And let's get the Americans in there. Right, right, right. Just kind of starting in on a brief background of what America was like at this time. I'm just going to read off some... Guns, girls, and beers, brother. And discrimination, baby. Oh, yeah. Wait, no. Not <laughs> wait, the last wait, wait, one. No, wait, wait, cut wait, that. Wait, wait, wait. Got that, cut that. But I'm just going to read off some, some key... Key events that I thought were pretty interesting, uh, specifically in the 1890s, building up to the Spanish-American War. So in in the early part of the decade, we have the Battle of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, which, if you're not familiar, is the last major battle between United States troops and Native Americans, where hundreds of Indian men, women, and children are slain, uh, along with a few American soldiers. And then those Native Americans are promptly relocated. Is it bad that whenever I hear the Battle of Wounded Knee, I think of that Skyrim meme? Where oh, I used to I be an, an adventurer, yeah, but then, then I, I took an arrow in the knee. <laughs> it's not as fun as with the actual battle. Not, no. <laughs> it's very more, much more depressing. Right. Then on the lighter side, we have the first ever American census, which put the United States population at roughly 63 million. Wow. So that's kind of neat. You know, not too bad, not too bad. Kind of popping, honestly. But then the United States Marine Marines, under the direction of U.S. Government Minister John L. Stevens, but not with direction from Congress, overthrew the Hawaiian government. Wow. All right. But, but, in the same decade, the first ever American football game was played, baby. Whoa. These colors don't run. Look at that. And they say America's never done anything cool. Yeah, we gave you basketball and football, both sports that we only care about yeah pretty much (laughs) talk about football anywhere else but here and you're talking about a completely different sport a football but then almost in a karma type situation the new york stock exchange collapses and america is put in a four-year depression i like how we're going from like High point, low point, high point, low point. This was absolutely the, yeah. The roller roller coaster is very, very different this year. Yes. But then the fourth of five different land runs in Oklahoma happen, uh, which is known as the Oklahoma Land Race. And 
stop me if you've heard this before, we took 100,000 people and Native Americans, moved them somewhere else, and then all these whiteies came in and basically got the land for pennies on the dollar. And that's where we get the Oklahoma Sooners. Yes, yes we do. That is, I've never really realized that before. Yes. Their mascot is... It hey. celebrates <laughs> taking land from people who already live there. <laughs> yes. But... Hold on. But hold on. We compete in the first America or Olympic Games, baby. Oh, oh, let's go. Is this the one in St. Louis? No, this is the first ever. Oh. Excuse me. So in Athens, Greece, even. Wow. So the Spartans were there. So the Spartans were there. And then it ended on a negative note because uh, ironically couldn't find too many positives in 1890s America. Weird. That is weird. A Supreme Court case, Plessy versus Ferguson states that racial segregation is approved uh, under the separate but equal doctrine. But... <laughs> I'm waiting for something to bring the mood up after that. The radio was patented. Hey! Ooh. But that's just not enough. Not that's enough. Just, this is not nearly enough to counterbalance. You know what? The rules of basketball are high, but I don't think it's enough to counterbalance uh, us taking Hawaii and overthrowing uh, a group of people that already had their own government. Us face the Supreme Court basically saying death, tyranny, <laughs> segregation versus basketball <laughs> versus. Uh, the first ever football game played by Latrobe YMCA against the Jeanette Athletic Club. I'll give you $100 if you can guess the final score. Three to zero. Oh, 12-0. Ah. <laughs> that would have stunk as we have that on camera and yeah. recorded. But that's just kind of a sense of what America was like at the time. There was also, of course, you know, that lingering uh, notion of manifest destiny. It may not have been manifest destiny to its actual definition where we want to take over all the land on the continent however we were looking to expand into all international waters any possible island that we can get we got it or tried yeah. to get it so expansionist idea ideolo ideology was very prominent not only in the government but also the american people i mean the american people were all for this at the time. Oh, yeah. They thought this is our time to shine, basically, as a country, to build ourselves into a superpower. And you get a lot of nationalism as well uh, in America, which I guess is always good and bad, because it's cool to like your country. It's not cool to be like, our country took over a different place that had its own government. Our country's better. Yeah. Because that's how Spain was, too. There's just so much patriotism for yes. the Spanish cause, mm -hmm. and it very much mimicked how the United States felt about themselves at the same time, except the United States actually had quite a bit of power growing in their side. So right. they had a lot more hope of actually fulfilling their ideals whereas spain was losing power so do you think there was ever a civilization or like some semblance of empire world power that was like you know what we stink <laughs> do you think they were ever not nationalistic anti-nationalism right basically just everyone on twitter in the united states yeah, now right. the nihilism view <laughs> right as we literally just tear apart our own country on a weekly basis on these here airwaves gotta do it gotta shine light on some things that we've done, but um, 
now we're going to actually go in to the Spanish-American War, kind of what caused it. and then... Don't you love getting 40 minutes into this episode and now we're getting into the main topic? <laughs> but I... Evan and I were texting each other earlier today and just kind of discussing what notes each of us had for mm. different the different sections of this episode. And both of us were like, you know, the actual war is the least exciting part of this entire thing. Right. It's all like the surrounding stuff that's very interesting and sets up for how... The world is going to change quite a bit. Drastically. That is for sure. But the Spanish-American War, like Jacob mentioned, started in 1898 and featured two heavyweight powers at the time, the United States of America and Spain. And it led to the acquisition of territories in both the Western Pacific, Western Pacific, and, of course, Latin America. And the main cause, of course, like Jacob mentioned, the Cuban struggle for independence, uh, the most recent one, started in February 1895 and went for, went for years. And Jacob, of course, gave that background. Uh, but the repressive measures that the Spanish were using to halt the rebellion, of course, for the reconcentration camps that we were talking about, as well as setting fire to all the food resources, were very much graphically portrayed by the United States public through several sensational newspapers who were engaging very heavily in what became known as yellow journalism. Now, Jacob, I know that you have a ton of info on yellow journalism. So I don't have probably as much as you do on this stuff, but uh, it's yellow journalism around this time period is upsetting because not only is it just pushing America into something that they know they shouldn't be involved in, but it's also two guys that hate each other just trying to combat one another and making these stories as popular and sensational as they can. Sell newspapers. Yeah, exactly. Basically. It's today's form of getting clicks. It's all about numbers. So mm-hmm. it's clickbait titles, basically. It, it truly is. This is the start of American media doing large, these huge, like bold type typography, multi-column headlines with just imaginative illustrations as well. So, like, uh, political cartoons were very popular during this time. And the headlines were the main thing, because I, we'll get mm-hmm. into it in a little bit, I'm sure, but the when one of the major points with the U.S. main ship happens, the headlines for that were just so misleading, if mm-hmm. you just took a glance at it. Yeah, they were very misleading, and they always, it was either the main headline or, like, your subheader, had some sort of call to action for the American people, which is absolutely insane because it's it truly it truly drove you know the American people to want to get involved in the war, um, and the Spanish American War definitely dominated the media. And once the actual sinking of the U.S. Maine happened, which we'll get into a little bit later, but to briefly state now, the U.S. Maine. USS Maine, was stationed in Havana to protect American interests, specifically American people, uh, but it did end up blowing up and sinking. And newspapers at the time actually ran headlines, and I quote here, Who destroyed the Maine? $50,000 reward. To yeah. the American people like they would know. Right. You know? 
And there's so many subtexts on there of hinting that, oh, it was the Spanish. Mm -hmm. But you always put a question mark because then it's not saying Mm -hmm. it was. And a lot of the newspapers in the late 19th century did this main form of like tabloid style. Uh, The notion that their headliners played a major part in starting the war is kind of overblown. Uh, So, for example, W. Joseph Campbell, who was a professor of communication at American University in Washington, D.C., does say that no serious historian of the Spanish-American War, all right, guy, it was a four-month war, let's relax, uh, embraces the notion that the yellow press of William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer fomented or brought on the war with Spain in 1898. And now one of those names is attached to a journalism award. The Pulitzer Prize, yes. For that is a great great shout-out. Yeah. It's kind of funny, too, that this is kind of the proto version of us trying to rally support for the war in vietnam by showing the news reports from vietnam except in that case it just did not work at all no joseph w joseph campbell goes on to say and i quote newspapers after all do not create the real policy differences between or did not create the real policy differences between the united states and spain over spain's harsh colonial rule of cuba so while yellow journalism definitely played a part in rallying the american people or not rallying the American people, hyper-centralizing, sen- sensationalizing uh, the American people. It did rally them, though. It did rally, but he says that you know most people don't really credit yellow journalism for a major part. No, but it definitely it. changed the way that everything was done for this time period. Mm-hmm. But like we mentioned, uh, the term yellow journalism was born from the rivalry between the two newspaper giants, Pulitzer and Randolph Hearst, the New York Journal specifically. And it started in 1895 with Pulitzer printing a comic strip featuring a boy in a yellow nightshirt entitled The Yellow Kid. Hearst then poached the cartoon's creator and ran the strip in his newspaper. So he basically took the, took the creator and was like, you work for me now. And a critic at the New York Press an effort to shame both of the newspapers essential to sense sense wow sensationalistic approach <laughs> coined the term yellow kid journalism after the cartoon and it was later shortened to yellow journalism my goodness I've seen sensationalistic you, i've seen you struggle before but that, <laughs> that was like a whole new level sensationalistic really have to speak that one out Spain announced an armistice on April 9th and speeded up its new program to grant Cuba limited powers of that self-government. So basically saying we're slowly but surely letting them self-govern. But the U.S. Congress soon afterward issued resolutions that declared Cuba's right to independence, demanded the withdrawal of Spain's armed forces from the island, and authorized the use of force by President William McKinley secure that withdrawal while renouncing any u.s design for annexing cuba and mckinley's kind of a big part of why we go into war with cuba because he knew that elections were coming up soon around Mm -hmm. this time period so he really saw the rally for support of cuba to go and help them out with all of these reports saying oh the cuban people are suffering so bad and he knew well if i prove that i'm going to support this that i'm going to get a ton of votes 
So that was his main thing to, that was his main reason for even supporting Cuba in the first place. There's no record of him mentioning that the intention for his intervention in Cuba was to defend Cuban independence. He never says that. No. Yeah. So it's, it's obvious that they just don't care about that, but yeah, 100% a political move just to get some votes. But in response, Spain declared war on the United States on April 24th, uh, and then the U.S. declared war on the 25th. So, we're back in war. Always war. Mm-hmm. The first major conflict of the war uh, happened on May 1st, 1898, uh, when U.S. Commodore George Dewey, who was in command of the U.S. Asiatic Squadron, which was docked north of Hong Kong, was ordered to capture or destroy the Spanish Pacific Fleet, which was known to be in the coastal waters of Spanish-controlled Philippines. So it's very interesting that the Spanish-American War, which was caused by a lot of turmoil in Cuba, the first battle is going to take place in Manila Bay in the Philippines, across the world. It's still against the Spanish, though, so technically it counts. (laughs) We got them, boys. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen. We got him. The tagline still works. Yep. On April 30th, Dewey's lookouts caught sight of Luzon, the main Philippine island. That night, under cover of darkness and with the lights aboard the U.S. warships extinguished, the squadron slipped by the defensive guns of Corrigider Island and into Manila Bay. After dawn, the Americans located the Spanish fleet. And it was just a bunch of yellow folders. Yeah, it was just, yeah. <laughs> it's weird that that was what we had to fight off, but I mean, huh. can't call it Manila Bay for nothing. Who brought, yeah, who brought folders to a gunfight? <laughs> we had the slight advantage. But, I mean, to your point, the uh, the Spanish fleet was basically a group of out-of-date warships. Uh, and they were anchored off the Cavite Naval Station. The U.S. fleet in comparison, was extremely well-armed, extremely well-staffed, and this was actually largely due to the efforts of one Theodore Roosevelt. There he is. Who was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. I just can't imagine him as not being Robin Williams anymore. Robin Williams gives Teddy Roosevelt such a beaming portrayal, considering Teddy Roosevelt is kind of a dick. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But it's, everyone will always remember it's Robin just Williams. It's hard to not see the night at the museum, Teddy Roosevelt. It's all I think about it now. I mean, every single time I look at the man, I'm thinking Robin Williams. American propaganda back at it again. Yep. Uh, at around 5:40 a.m., Dewey turned to the captain of his flagship, the Olympia, and said, "You may fire when ready, Gridley." Two hours later, the Spanish fleet was decimated, and Dewey actually ordered a pause in the fighting, met with his captains, and ordered that his crew take a second breakfast. Yeah. Which is, if you can't tell how much of an advantage we had in this quote-unquote war, we had times for seconds of cinnamon rolls. They had 11 Zs. Right, yeah. (laughs) For all of my Lord of the Rings. I was just about to say, yeah, Lord of the Rings. Uh, The surviving Spanish vessels, who were still trapped in a very little harbor refused to surrender, 
And later that morning, the fighting resumed. Again, with the fighting being the U.S. ships bombarding the heck out of the Spanish. Earlier that afternoon, a signal was then sent from the gunboat USS Petrel to Dewey's flagship announcing that the enemy has surrendered. Weird, I wonder why. They just kept on throwing manila folders and they couldn't couldn't quite reach the U.S. ships. Uh, Spanish losses were estimated at more than 370 troops, while American casualties were fewer than 10. And as a result, the U.S. gained complete control of the Philippines. Good first step. And now back to Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Yes. I mean, we've kind of been on the regularly scheduled programming this whole time. Genocide, American intervention in places they don't need to be. Radio's invented. The first football game. Hey, you couldn't be listening to us if the radio was never invented. So thank you, radio guy. Shout out, radio guy. We should definitely radio know. Guy. Yes, we should definitely we should definitely know his name. Nah, he's nah. radio guy. You get if you know who the who invented the radio, we're not going to look it up. But comments on our yeah, let us know Twitter, Instagram, our TikToks, or our YouTubes. Now again, back to Cuba. The elusive Spanish Caribbean fleet under Admiral Pascual Cervera was located in Santiago Harbor in Cuba by U.S. reconnaissance forces. An army of regular troops and volunteers under General William Shafter, which, barely know her. Yeah, <laughs> damn it. Ha-ha. Beat me to it. <laughs> You'll never get the best of me <laughs> when it comes to a barely know her joke. We know each other too well. Far too well. Uh, but this uh, combined force of regular troops and volunteers also included Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, Roosevelt uh, as well as his first volunteer cavalry, the Rough Riders. They landed on the east coast of Santiago and slowly advanced on the city in an effort to force the, excuse me, in order to force Surveyor's fleet out of the harbor and into the uh, and into the accompanying uh, United States blockade. So it's at this point that the uh, Spanish-American War uh, kind of becomes more of a, let's say, like this mythological, mythologized, if that's even a word, uh, thing, uh, particularly for Teddy Roosevelt. For example, in his legendary charge on horseback, leading the Rough Riders up Cuba's San Juan Hill in a heroic, vil- in a heroic victory for the United States. When, in reality, it didn't quite go that way. And this narrative was very carefully crafted by Roosevelt himself. Uh, this is an image that truly won him the presidency, like we mentioned. The same with you know Andrew Jackson when he won the Battle of New Orleans, which took place after the War of 1812. But it was a very much a combination of both savvy PR and very much a racial bias, Man, which I, I missed the days where you could just make stuff up and no one could fact check you on it. You could just say it. It happened that way. That's how it is. Yeah, <laughs> prove me on prove to me I'm wrong. Were this, you in Cuba? This is the definition of if enough people believe that it's a fact, then it's a fact. Then it's reality. That's that's totally true. Especially at this time, we have newspapers. With these bold headlines that would eventually later, after the battle, praise Roosevelt's bravery and his squadron's bravery 
Not saying that like his squadron wasn't brave, but I'll get to Teddy Roosevelt's involvement, but it definitely portrayed him in such a great light, but completely, completely overshadowed extreme bravery and contributions from black troops known as Buffalo Soldiers, who served alongside white soldiers on the same exact battlefield. Buffalo Soldier. That is a song. It is. <laughs> uh, in his book about the war, Roosevelt refers to these soldiers as shirkers, which is a very old time. I mean, I'll read the full quote later, but he, it's basically a, at the time a slur for African Americans. We had plenty of them, so pick your choice. There had to be like an entire dictionary at this point in the United States history. Like they were just throwing everything out. Uh, but for many historians, these Buffalo soldiers stand among the hardest fighting heroes of this three-week war. So I mentioned it was months. It was actually only three weeks. This particular campaign, excuse yeah, me. Because I think the Cuba. whole thing was like three three months, three weeks, and like six days or something like that. Right. And seven hours and two minutes. Yeah. Be more exact, please. <laughs> <Sorry>. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought we weren't mentioning dates, okay? Oh, no. Uh, but in the push to capture the strategically important city of Santiago in Cuba... Some 8,000 Americans actually battled for the two nearby hills of San Juan Heights, which did include Roosevelt and his volunteer regiment, but also included 1,000, excuse me, over 1,250 black soldiers. Unlike in most United States wars, the fighting was an integrated effort, so this is really the first time post-Civil War that African-American soldiers are involved in a formal conflict because these same same Buffalo soldiers were involved with Native American uh, skirmishes, which is actually how they got their name uh, from the Native Americans calling them Buffalo soldiers. Uh, instead of, I can't even imagine what the nickname was for the whiteies. Uh, I don't even want to think about it. Yeah. But, uh, the cool guy brigade. Right. But uh, this is just one quote uh, from U.S. Defense Department historian Frank Schubert. Regulars and volunteers, blacks and whites, fought side by side, endured the blistering heat and driving rain, and shared food and drink as well as peril and discomfort. They forged a victory that did not belong primarily to Teddy Roosevelt, nor did it belong mainly to the Buffalo Soldiers. It belonged to all of them. I know he's uh, a little bit fair to Teddy Roosevelt. I'm not going to be in my next couple points. <laughs> um, but the root of, or excuse me, the origination of these Buffalo soldiers uh, actually came in the service of black soldiers during the Civil War during the uh, or for the Union Army. Uh, as a result, because they were so impressed, Congress actually created six all-black cavalry and infantry regiments in 1866 which was one year after the Civil War ended. This was later consolidated into four regiments, the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry. Black troops served mostly on the western frontier, where they helped build infrastructure, protect protect white settlers, and fight Native Americans. And like I mentioned, their nickname buffalo soldiers came from the native americans who resided in the plains who they were you know actively fighting 
They were a proto version of the, I believe it was in World War One, the Harlem Hellfighters, mm-hmm. the All Black Squadron. There's a lot of really cool right. stuff like this that we should like do a compilation episode on. Right, the Tuskegee Airmen as well. I yeah, mean, that's another. Ooh. Extremely, extremely interesting. And if we want to get real depressing about it, we can do the Tuskegee experiments, which is not oh, fun. That's but... one of my least favorite. Least favorite. I hate that moment in history. Is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Uh, just with the amount of. Okay, we're getting we're getting off yeah, track. We're getting, <laughs> we're getting off track. Uh, while soldiering on behalf of the governments that had abolished slavery only a few years earlier, black troops endured discrimination in the army. Repressive Jim Crow segregation and violent attacks from civilians, even when they were being, even when black soldiers were the ones that were defending them, for example, on the plains against Indian attacks. Uh, there's multiple reports of white settlers you know, spitting on black soldiers that they were paired with to protect them, and of course, just saying probably the most horrendous things uh, of of all time. And there were many in the nation who were violently against providing uh, African-American men with guns and making them, or excuse me, including them in the army uh, just because of, I mean, to not sugarcoat it, I mean, racism. Yeah. Uh, And that just, in the back of their mind, they thought that uh, that African-American men couldn't be trusted with these firearms. Back to the Spanish-American War and why so many... African Americans were involved. Pick up my spirits a little bit here. <laughs> oh no, this isn't mine. Uh, damn it. Military officials uh, assumed that African American troops had a higher tolerance for tropical climates and were immune to all tropical diseases, and they were considered the ideal soldiers to deploy to Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines to help get, or excuse me, to help root out the Spanish. Of the 17,000 U.S. troops that were sent to Cuba, 3,000 were black. Wow. Which, this is 1898. Yeah, that that's, is... It's a big proponent of a war That's effort. a huge percentage when you put in perspective of the times. Again, it was definitely motivated by the uh, thought that somehow these men were just immune to tropical diseases. Yeah. But they were involved. So United States troops landed in the southeastern tip of of Cuba on June 22nd, 1898, with, of course, the goal of capturing the port city of Santiago. Two days later, when engaging the enemy at Las Guasimas, the Rough Riders struck first. But they, along with other troops, were pinned down in intense skirmish until the Buffalo Soldiers' 10th Cavalry Regiment arrived and actually forced the Spanish to retreat. Hell yeah. A week later, on July 1st, the Americans set out to take Kettle Hill and San Juan Hill, which were both high points in the San Juan Heights about a mile outside of the city of Santiago. Roosevelt's volunteers, along with regular enlisted troops, both black and white, were assigned to take the blockhouse atop Kettle Hill, while other regiments focused focused on San Juan Hill. Rough Riders and Buffalo Soldiers from the 9th Cavalry were the first to reach the Kettle Hill Summit, taking extremely heavy Spanish fire during their ascent, and then engaging in deadly hand-to-hand combat in the trenches. So, these hills were extremely fortified. They had, like I mentioned, trenches, but they also had actual, I believe they're referred to as pillboxes, 
where you could, you know, take cover and fire down on an approaching enemy. I'm not sure if the Spanish had Gatling guns at this point. No idea. Or not the the cranky boys, right? Yeah, the cranky, yeah. <laughs> cranky boys. So they not were sure. angry, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. But I don't I'm not sure if they had them, but regardless, these are very fortified positions. Roosevelt was slowed when his horse snagged on barbed wire uh, just below the crest of the hill, forcing him to proceed on foot the remainder of the day. How upset was he that he had to walk? <laughs> right, he's like, I paid good money for this horse. Its name is also Teddy. It's Teddy <laughs> Jr. After taking the blockhouse, American units then ran down from Kettle Hill and through an exposed valley to join the pitch battle at San Juan Hill. In the descent, Roosevelt tried to rally men behind him, but according to historians, only five heard him in the noise and confusion, so regrouping was very slow. Meanwhile, other black and white troops took control of the second hill. Sergeant George Barry of the 10th Cavalry, who was a Buffalo soldier, carried the colors of both his regiment and that of the 3rd Regiment that he got from a wounded white soldier, and planted them at the top of San Juan Hill, which that is such a powerful image to, yeah. uh, to talk about that. This man took both both flags from different regiments, and he was, like I mentioned, a Buffalo soldier, so a, most likely very much discriminated against even in this own military campaign, and planted both on top of the hill. It's too bad that there wasn't a photographer to have like a proto version of an Iwo Jima photo right this. well i mean there's a very famous photo which features teddy roosevelt that and a bunch of whiteies but yeah um overall uh from and this is from military historian roger d cunningham the black troops and i quote made significant contributions to the speedy victory earning five different medals of honor and 29 certificates of merit for their gallantry under fire one Buffalo soldier in particular, who was named Edward Lee Baker, received the Medal of Honor for its gallantry on July 1st, 1898. The medal's actual citation reads, He left cover and, while under fire, rescued a wounded comrade from drowning. Wow. So, definitely wanted to paint the picture of these extremely brave men who put their lives on the line uh, very hand-in-hand, with their white counterparts and endured the same grueling conditions, the same heat, the same fire, the same battles, uh, all for... Essentially for a country that didn't view them uh, as humans like 30 years before. Right, right. Now, this is the part where, you know, Roosevelt changed to dominate the narrative. So if you couldn't tell from what we just, what I just mentioned, we did capture both of these hills and would, you know, further down the line, capture Santiago. But uh, here, Jerry Tussell, who was the author of the book The Roughest Riders, The Untold Story of the Black Soldiers in the Spanish-American War, and this is a quote from the book, Roosevelt did not get up to the top of San Juan Hill until the fighting was over. But, of course, waiting up there, were six hand-picked reporters by Roosevelt himself. They gave him the big reception. The media loved him because he was a colorful character and an adventurer. He was great copy. 
So you're telling me that Teddy Roosevelt ain't a hero? He was kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, I, I don't believe for a second. So yes, we're uh, we just we're joined by a guest. It's forty year old. My or, name's Gregory Hines. <laughs> Gregory, good to have you on. Good to have you on. So. I live in Southern Louisiana. <laughs> And how many Bud Diesels have you had today? Fourteen before 14. noon mm. and about 12 cents. Hmm. Just shy of a 30 rack. Hopefully got all the Bud Diesel talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> technical issues. We're still running with this new setup, so. All right. Uh, reporters on the scene helped Roosevelt burnish his legends. The well-known fiction writer and award-winning correspondent Richard Harding Davis, whom Roosevelt had befriended before the war, wrote how, during the ascent of Kettle Hill, the ambitious lieutenant colonel on horseback lunged from behind the regular troops to speed their advance, and how he galloped repeatedly between rifle pits to inspire black soldiers and rough riders alike. And as we read before, Roosevelt actually lost his horse, so... Well, weird. (laughs) No one who saw Roosevelt take that ride expected he would finish it alive. It looked like foolhardiness, but as a matter of fact, set the pace with his horse and inspired his men. Watching Roosevelt, he added, and excuse me, these are all quotes from uh, Richard Harding Davis, uh, basically putting fire in the, you know, putting wood in the fire of the narrative that Teddy Roosevelt spun. So he reports, no one who saw Roosevelt take that ride expected he would finish it alive. It looked like foolhardiness, but as a matter of fact, set the pace with his horse and inspired his men. It made you feel that you would like to cheer. Roosevelt then later commissioned a painting by renowned artist Frederick Remington of his charge up the hill which is still a very memorable, but of course fictionalized, image of this cowboy, soldier, president, adventurer, etc. Got a cool hat. He has a very cool hat. In the immediate aftermath of the war, Roosevelt praised the role of the Buffalo Soldiers, and I quote, No one can tell whether it was the Rough Riders or the black men of the 9th Cavalry who came forward with the greater courage to offer their lives in the service of their country. So that's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt after the war. However, in Roosevelt's actual book titled The Rough Riders, which was published a year later, he revised the narrative and he actually wrote down, and I quote here, Negro troops were shirkers in their duties and would only go as far as they were led by white officers. So he completely changed the narrative in this book. Uh, he did. Most historians say that he did this with the presidential run in mind, because of course the Buffalo Soldiers did get some acclaim during these during these during this war, and took a little bit of the limelight away from Teddy. But he made sure to revise. He's got to be a war hero. Yes. So. Like I mentioned, on the return home, the Buffalo Soldiers were briefly feted as war heroes, but they soon found that their uniforms didn't shield them from the indignity of segregation or from racial violence and terrorism. 
However, for many black Americans at the time, the Buffalo Soldiers stood as the symbols of hope. They were America's, and I quote, race heroes of the time. Their service and valor were celebrated in black media, in black drama, poetry, and art. And I quote here, uh, a quote here from Rayford Logan, who was an African-American historian. Negroes had little at the turn of the century to help us sustain our faith in ourselves except the pride that we took in the 9th and 10th Cavalry, the 24th and 25th Infantry. He goes on to say, and I quote, Many Negro homes had prints of the famous charge of the colored troops up San Juan Hill. They were our Ralph Bunchy, Marion Anderson, Joe Lewis, and Jackie Robinson. Snaps. Snaps, snaps for them. Absolutely. So definitely wanted to highlight these unbelievable men uh, in their service to, like we mentioned, a country that you know didn't really, did not treat them right uh, by any means when they got home. Still, but, arguably still doesn't. Oh, yes. Very so. much so. Still doesn't. Uh, but to wrap up the war, uh, Santiago did surrender. The city of Santiago surrendered to William Shafter on July 17th, which effectively ended the brief but momentous war. The Treaty of Paris was then signed, which officially ended the war, and that was signed on December 10th, 1898. In it, Spain renounced all claim to Cuba, ceded Guam and Puerto Rico to the United States, and transferred sovereignty over the Philippines to the United States for $20 million, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. It's a lot of folders that we could buy. <laughs> we got a lot of land from the Spanish for a very little amount of money. Stop me if you've heard that one before. Yeah. The, we kind of played the French and the Spanish. Yeah. Uh, just one quick note on the on the Philippines. So, of course, Philippine insurgents who had been fighting the Spanish rule for ever soon turned their guns and swords against the new occupiers and the Philippine American War swiftly began in February of 1899, so not two months after the Spanish-American War, and ten times the amount of U.S. troops died suppressing revolts in the Philippines than in defeating Spain, which is absolutely insane. The Cubans kind of did a lot of the heavy lifting. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just putting a final note on the Spanish-American War. So this war was an incredible turning point in the history of both of these countries. So, like we mentioned, Spain's defeat decisively turned the nation's attention away from being that imperial power, uh, having interests in different overseas islands and colonial ventures, and they really turned inward upon the domestic needs, which was a process that led to both a cultural and literary renaissance and two decades of much-needed economic development in Spain. So Yeah, they definitely needed to just settle down and do their thing. Right, they had to get some me time. Yeah, they definitely did. Yeah, two decades of self-reflection and finding out who I am on the inside. Some reflection. Yes. The victorious United States, on the other hand, emerged from the war a world power with far-flung overseas possessions and a new stake in international politics that would then lead to us playing a very determining role in 
couple different wars that will take place. One in, you know, 1918, 1917, uh, and then one in, like, 1940s. Yeah, I think I've heard of them. But that is a wrap-up of the Spanish-American War. Yeah, and uh, just before we end here, I kind of wanted to mention briefly how modern historians are changing the view on how the Spanish-American War is looked at. And especially in Cuba, a lot of modern historians are coming more to an agreement that the United States intervention in Cuba was probably not needed, and it's more or less a forced entry into Cuba. There's multiple accounts that argue against Cuba needing U.S. help and actually show that Cuba was most likely going to win on their own. Uh, For one example, in February of 1898, a large Spanish army was defeated pretty thoroughly by General Gomez with his report saying, quote, The enemy is crushed and in complete retreat from here, and the time which favored their operation passes without their doing anything, end quote. Spain still controlled populated areas of Cuba, but couldn't win the battles that they were fighting against the rebels. And in March of 1898, even the U.S. State Department expressed that, quote, the Spanish armies have not achieved any success over the Cubans in more than two months, end quote. I'm just picturing, like, these two generals playing a game of one-on-one, for example, and the U.S. is just on the sideline, like, can I play? But guys, guys, can I can I come in? It, can it, I play? It is that. And it's then, like the younger brother that can't play on the Xbox. And he's like, is it right. my turn yet? And then we came in, won the game, smashed the Xbox, and gave double birds to both parties. <laughs> yes, exactly. So now, but it's funny because in March of 1898, before we get involved, even the State Department of the U.S. is saying the Spanish aren't winning. The Cubans are winning. Right. They don't need us. So the State Department even called Spain's last-ditch efforts to offer Cuba autonomy a, quote, complete, utter and complete failure. Oh, jeez. So by this point, the revolutionaries were pushing into western Cuba, and the Spanish had no response. And as one man, Sergio Aguirre of the University of Havana wrote, quote, Why presume that this counterstrike would have been able to appear in 1898 or after, end quote, Basically asserting that Cuba already had it handled. Yeah. And didn't need us. So For real. Cuba was like, guys, for real, we got this. And as much as there is a pushback now to say that the U.S. wasn't necessarily needed here, there are still historians who praise the United States for helping and claim the U.S. was, quote, the only nation in the hemisphere at that time capable of standing up to Spain with force, and, if it came to it, imposing a solution satisfactory to the Cuban cause. Well, I mean, the first part of that quote was right, that we were the only military force that could stand up to Spanish. The yeah. second half was wrong, but... That quote comes from a Cuban historian named Guillermo de Zendegui, and he also takes a quote from General Gomez, which was sent to a Spanish general named General Blanco, And he takes this quote from Gomez as proof that Cuban patriots were welcoming U.S. intervention because Gomez Mm. wrote, quote, until now, I have only had feelings of admiration for the United States. I have written to President McKinley and to General Miles, thanking them for the American intervention in Cuba. I do not see the danger of our being exterminated by the United States to which you refer in your letter. If that should happen, history will judge them. End quote. I mean, history, we, 
he was right. Yeah. We, judge, we, judge that. we judge the hell out of America. So. so on the surface, this appears to be good evidence that the Cuban generals at this time were supporting the intervention. Mm-hmm. But this is also a Cuban general sending letters back and forth with a Spanish general who is the outright enemy in this war. So it could just be that he didn't want to admit that he didn't want the United States involved just to use the United States as a bluff saying, we have them on our side, so you guys should get out of here. Oh, I definitely would expect that to be the case. So, I mean, it is a quote saying we welcome it. So, I mean... There's still support from both sides of the coin saying Mm -hmm. the U.S. should have been involved, the U.S. shouldn't have been involved, a lot of the U.S. should be involved support comes from the U.S., and a lot of Cuban historians now are kind of revising and looking at it again and saying, maybe not. Right, right, right. Because even, I think it was in 1976, they looked at the sinking of the USS Maine, and it's overwhelmingly proved pretty much that it was internal combustion that blew up the ship, and it wasn't anything that the Spanish or anyone else from the outside did. I totally glanced over that, so I do apologize. Yeah, the USS Maine, it said that um, Spanish mine was the thing that destroyed it, but like you mentioned, there's just no evidence of it. Yeah. But yeah, that is the Spanish-American War. Yeah, extremely interesting. and For such a short war, a lot happened afterwards. For, for such a short war, very long episode for yeah, us. <laughs> honestly. But I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I uh, hope the new setup sounds good. Let us know how you guys like the new audio setup. We obviously will be able to tell the difference once we edit it and stuff. But mm-hmm. hopefully it sounds good on your end, too. And we can continue bringing you guys the best quality content that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to continue the conversation, let us know how the audio quality was. Or just have a conversation with us about the today's topic. You can find us on all the social medias. So you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. You can find us on TikTok at gems of history pod. And you can now find us on YouTube. We'll be posting clips of our episode. Uh, We've been trying to do more video content. We'll probably also be doing reels on Instagram and videos on Twitter as well. But you can find us on YouTube at jet well i guess there's no at on youtube but at gems of history podcast so like subscribe hit the notification bell etc did you mention the facebook group damn it every time (laughs) join the facebook group it's called the agora on facebook just search for it gems of history discussion you'll find it i don't understand how i forget that every time evan was banging his head into a wall before we started or something because he is struggling today it is a day (laughs) but All of you people out there, hope you're not struggling. Hope you're doing fantastic. And you know what you guys got to do out there? Stay polished.